Hello, and welcome to this podcast hosted by the Department of Politics and International Relations at Ursinus College. My name is Mary Adadakwa, and I'm a senior double majoring in Applied Economics and International Relations with a minor in Spanish. And I'm Johannes Kareth, an assistant professor of politics and international relations at Ursinus College. In this episode, we'll discuss some of our research on the role of the international community before and after civil wars. First, we'll hear about your research on the role of foreign aid in generating economic growth after massive political violence. This is part of your honors thesis, which you just defended successfully, right? Yeah, and later on, we'll take a closer look at your recent book on civil war prevention and how international organizations can contribute to that. We are actually having this conversation just a few days after the United Nations and the European Union held a joint pledging conference to organize foreign support for humanitarian aid to Syria. And Syria, of course, has been going through a civil war since 2011. And this civil war has claimed several hundred thousand lives and displaced several millions of people. That's right. And this conflict is unfortunately only one of several civil wars happening in the world right now. And there are a number of conflicts that have ended, but their legacies are still very present. So, for instance, at the recent Kuwait International Conference on the Reconstruction of Iraq, countries and international organizations pledged about 30 billion U.S. dollars to reconstruct Iraq after years of war. And this number actually fell short of the 80 billion U.S. dollars that uh, were estimated necessary by the Iraqi government as needed to rebuild the country. And Iraq is only one example of the lasting damages caused by civil wars. But Syria and Iraq also show that civil wars this means domestic conflicts, are intricately linked to the rest of the world. And I think you have something to say about this, right? Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's hear a little bit about what your project is investigating. So um, this year for the past year, I had a project and it was investigating basically the impact of foreign aid um, and what it has on economic growth and development in developing countries going through reconstruction after a conflict. Um, but I chose to focus this investigation specifically on Rwanda and my research question ended up being, how does foreign aid affect the economic growth and development of Rwanda during its post-war reconstruction? So can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this question? Yeah, so I've always been interested in economic development um, and economic growth in sub-Saharan African countries, as well as foreign aid and whether or not foreign aid has an impact on the development and growth. But choosing Rwanda as a case study basically came from my natural interest in the country, its civil war, and its president. I thought that it would be interesting to examine the effects of foreign aid, specifically during reconstruction in a country. And this is basically um, due to economic theory that suggests that foreign aid or other kind of um, capital accum accumulation should have positive effects on economic growth and development in that country. So it was basically a combination of personal interests and economic theory um, and guidance from my advisors as well that led me to that question. And so once you had that question, once you had outlined uh, your interest in this topic, how did you actually go about doing your research? Right. So I first began to look at different schools of thoughts that scholars had as it pertained to foreign aid and its impact on economic growth. Um, and the three, <clears throat> excuse me, the three uh, schools of thoughts that um, I found were that foreign aid had a positive impact on economic growth, it had a negative impact on economic growth, or there was inconclusive, um, there was really inconclusive evidence on whether or not it had any impact on economic growth. So I looked at um, those different kinds of research, and then I kind of developed my own theory about what I thought it would have on um, economic growth in Rwanda specifically. And what I predicted is that there would initially be a positive re relationship between foreign aid and economic growth, but then eventually we'll see a negative relationship because of the factors such as corruption um, and lack of efficient and effective institutions in the country. 
So then after I developed this theory, I had to come up with formula formulas that I would be able to test um, through statistical analysis um, between the relationship of foreign aid and economic growth. Um, and some of the other variables that I looked at were productivity, labor force, the capital stock, and government effectiveness. So when I analyzed this data using um, the statistical methods, what it showed me was that there was a strength of the relationship between different variables um, and economic growth. But my findings were that foreign aid alone did not have a strong relationship with economic growth. But when it was actually interacted with my um, government effectiveness variable, that's where I saw there was a strong relationship with economic growth. And the other variables, productivity, labor force, and capital stock, also had strong relationships with economic growth. So those are intriguing findings. Uh, how would you make sense of these? How would you explain these findings? So a lot of these findings can be explained by um, economic theory. And the specific theory I was looking at was the solo model, which basically talks about um, three different components to economic growth um, and their productivity, labor, and capital. And that in itself explains why there were such strong relationships between, between those variables um, in my investigation. But when it comes to economic growth and foreign aid, I think those findings can be explained by the need for institutions when it comes to foreign aid and economic growth. Uh, I found that foreign aid was, um, when it was interacted with the government effectiveness variable, the combination of these two variables actually had a larger uh, effect on economic growth and development than foreign aid did on its own. And I think that has to do with um, the fact that just because money is given to a country doesn't necessarily mean that it relates to economic growth. In fact, a government has to make effective and efficient use of that money in order for it to lead to um, economic growth and development. Now, you mentioned that you had a more general interest in foreign aid um, and economic development, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. What do you think that your study can tell us about foreign aid and growth in more general terms beyond this case of Rwanda? So overall, I think this is something that can be applied to many different countries, not just um, Rwanda alone. But it tells me that foreign aid does seem to promote economic growth and development when it's paired with an effective government and good institutions. And for me, I think that's something that's very important, um, not just for countries post-conflict, but for countries that are receiving any kind of aid um, in order to develop further. It tells me that the continuous supply of aid that countries are receiving isn't actually aiding or contributing to its economic growth or development, but it just shows the importance of um, the government, the government effectiveness, and the institutions of a country, because these are those things that are able to um, hold the country accountable and how they're able to handle the aid as well. Um, but I also thought that this study really speaks to other factors that maybe it's not necessarily um, foreign aid that we need to look at when we're thinking of um, economic growth and development there, perhaps we might need to look more at like productivity, um, labor force, and other forms of capital stock or investment um, because of the fact that there were components of the solo model that I used. So we definitely have some really important evidence in your study about the role of governments for economic development and the role of government effectiveness. And I have a study actually forthcoming in the Journal of Peace Research that finds a pretty similar dynamic, but in different contexts. We investigated in the study whether building up international treaties over international water resources can improve cooperation between states. Now, this is a critical case for cooperation because many scholars and policymakers have argued that water can be the type of scarce resource that can lead to violence between states. But what we find is that international cooperation over the scarce resource is actually possible, and building international treaties with institutions helps. But these institutions only help if governments themselves possess a baseline level of bureaucratic capacity mm -hmm. so that they can implement policies and take care of treaty obligations. So while this is a completely different issue than 
your research, mm -hmm. of course, it suggested your emphasis on government effectiveness is a pretty important point. Right. So no doubt civil wars and political violence are, of course, themselves a big problem for government effectiveness, which begs the question if the international community can do something about these civil wars before they even begin. And I know this topic is um, one that you've written on. And clearly, civil wars create a number of lasting problems. Many of them also affect the broader international community. And as I've shown in the case of Rwanda, it's an uphill battle for the international community to help rebuild countries after massive political violence. Why is it that um, these international or, or communities, why don't they do something about the civil wars before they actually begin? And what actually can they do? I think it's fair to reiterate that civil wars are really the number one or probably at least the top three issue that the whole world is dealing with right now. And we already mentioned that civil wars cause a large number of casualties, but they also lead to massive human suffering and people suffer from abuse in different forms. If people can make it out of a civil war zone, many are traumatized, although it's also important to highlight the resilience of survivors, of course. Um, from a political perspective, I would say that civil wars leave lasting legacies. We have pretty strong evidence for this. They damage government institutions, and you just told us why government institutions are really important. They damage public health systems, they damage infrastructure, and many other things. And so all this leads to what researchers have called the civil war trap. That means that countries that once experienced civil wars are also much more likely to experience them again. So we're dealing with a really serious problem here. Mm -hmm. So all this should actually create an incentive for the international community to do something about this, correct? I agree, right. So academics and policymakers have developed, devoted lots of attention to finding solutions for managing these conflicts and managing their consequences. So here we can think of three techniques. Uh, the first is mediation, the second is peacekeeping, and the third is intervention in different forms, economic intervention or military intervention, for example. The United Nations engages in preventive diplomacy in some cases, uh, but not in all violent conflicts. And there is also some evidence that UN peacekeepers can reduce casualties both among civilians and on the battlefield. And peacekeepers can also reduce the risk in general that civil wars recur once they've ended. So peacekeeping can break the civil war trap. But there's also some new research that suggests that the duration of civil wars has increased over the last 20 or 30 years. And that comes, of course, with considerably human cost. And I would argue that the slow and often ambiguous responses from the international community to political violence have really emboldened governments and rebels, insurgents as well, to use force in order to push for their demands. This lack of lasting engagement by external actors is often part of the explanation for why these, con uh, these conflicts continue to rage and continue to go on. So what other options are there? Well, in our book, we present some evidence for a more optimistic view of how the international community can help prevent civil wars in the first place. We focus on a specific subset of intergovernmental organizations that has the capacity and self-interest to engage in member states in a way that really directly addresses commitment problems in pre-civil war bargaining between governments and insurgents. And these intergovernmental organizations, or IGOs, uh, we consider these highly structured IGOs. And those IGOs include institutions such as the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, or the Economic Community of West African States. And these are multilateral bodies, so these are multilateral organizations, and they have very clearly defined and often economic mandates. Mediating political disputes is not something that they are tasked with. Um, but at the same time, civil wars in member countries really block the ability of these organizations to carry out their tasks. And that gives them a functional self-interest, uh, functional self-interest in 
having member countries be reasonably stable and definitely a self-interest in preventing civil wars in member countries. And this gives them a powerful tool to establish incentives to avoid political violence in member countries. We consider this leverage of highly structured IGOs in member countries to have a notable influence on the costs and benefits that governments and rebels face, especially in early phases of political unrest and political violence. And that's before civil wars escalate, like you asked. So when these highly structured IGOs are engaged in a country, both governments and rebels can expect very clear costs from escalating violence. Escalating violence will lead to a disengagement of these highly structured IGOs and their withdrawal and withdrawal of their staff, of their resources and other benefits they provide to member countries. But highly structured IGOs also bring a promise and that promise is materializing in rewards for keeping the peace by providing substantial material resources and other benefits that are really conditional on the absence of further violence. And this puts highly structured IGOs into a unique position to credibly provide benefits, um, but those benefits are only there if conflict can be prevented. And the self-interest of those organizations uh, and their self-interest in successful performance of these organizations requires them to avoid engagement in contexts of high fragility and high violence. Now what this all means is that when these highly structured IGOs are engaged in a country, then governments and rebels in pre-civil war bargaining are really aware of the high costs of violence. And that in turn provides a crucial commitment device to settle conflicts before they escalate. And the evidence that we found actually suggests that the engagement of these IGOs in member countries is associated with a substantial decline of the risk that political conflicts escalate to civil wars. That's all really interesting. So how did you conduct your research? Uh, we analyzed all violent political conflicts in the world between 1946 and 2000. And because our argument emphasizes the development of violence into civil wars, we coded information for each conflict, whether it escalated to a civil war or not. And since World War II, about one-third um, of over 260 separate low-level armed conflicts has escalated into civil war. And then we conducted a statistical analysis to see whether those countries with more connections to highly structured IGOs faced a considerably lower risk of escalation. And that's what we found. Conflicts in countries with more connections to highly structured IGOs faced a considerably lower risk of escalation, reduced by up to a half. And the advantage of the statistical analysis in this case is that it allowed us to compare this explanation, relying on highly structured IGOs, to a lot of other possible explanations for escalation, just like you did in your analysis. And after using a whole battery of tests and checking for alternative explanations, the evidence is still pretty solid that the role of highly structured IGOs is a robust role here. Now, can you explain how this played out in a particular case? Sure. So there's one case that's representative for these broader trends, and that's the history of East Timor. And this case illustrates how international organizations can successfully incentivize conflict parties to negotiate and resolve political disputes before they escalate. In Indonesia, um, in the 1990s, a crisis originated when the East Timorese opposition demanded independence from Indonesia. And after the government responded with violence initially, some highly structured IGOs, and most notably the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, threatened and imposed, actually, sanctions on the Indonesian regime. The regime responded by yielding eventually to the pressure from these IGOs and yielding to calls for East Timor's independence. And both sides then reached a settlement and avoided a full-scale full -scale civil war. And as promised, the highly structured IGOs in this case then resumed and 
begun some programs uh, to foster economic development in those countries. And both Indonesia and East Timor have since then made considerable economic improvements. And some of those improvements were helped by resources that came from highly structured IGOs. And uh, what are these organizations doing about violence nowadays? That's a great question because, of course, my research suggests that these organizations should use their influence for good, right? Um, I can say that these IGOs have increasingly emphasized concerns about the detrimental impact of violence on their missions. They are coordinating their conflict-related know-how and um, knowledge much more than they used to. For instance, the World Bank has a unit on fragility, conflict, and violence. And project managers at the bank are much more likely now um, to consider the impact of a project um, on political instability and vice versa. So they really pay attention to how their engagement relates to political instability and violence. And the bank has also engaged in a partnership with the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, mm -hmm. on violence prevention. And uh, that to me suggests that coordination has really reached beyond the realm just of multilateral organizations. So there's also coordination between multilaterals and between individual donor countries. And the bank also just released a study jointly with the United Nations, and that study is called Pathways for Peace, Inclusive Approaches to Preventing Violent Conflict. And that's another piece of evidence that inclusive and collaborative efforts for conflict prevention have really risen to the top of the agenda um, of these IGOs. And so now that we've talked a lot about international organizations as a source of influence on preventing the escalation of political disputes, can you say a little bit more about what your research might suggest on the role of specifically international organizations in generating growth compared to states as donors of foreign aid? What did you find uh, about this particular question? How do international organizations compare to states as donors? Well, I think um, international organizations can possibly play a bigger role with regards to the allocation of aid uh, in these different countries as well as its usage. Um, we see um, things like the Paris um, Declaration and the Accra Agenda for Action, which were created to help improve the quality of aid and its impact on um, development, but it can be recognized that these um, uh, declarations and actions can actually also impede um, on a country's sovereignty. So it's kind of hard to say if there are any other roles that I think the international organizations can play. But um, one thing that I didn't necessarily discuss too much in my paper, um, but something I've always been thinking about is the purpose in which other states give aid. A lot of the time we see that uh, when very developed countries, very developed states are giving developing countries or post-conflict countries aid, a lot of it is because of some personal gains, such as having access to certain resources, which can be de detrimental to the developing country because they could, in fact, use those resources probably a lot more than um, the developed country. And I think um, in that case, international organizations can help to determine those, intent those intentions of the state donors that are giving aid. But... Um, I don't necessarily think that those international organizations are also in a better position to really generate growth um, than state donors, because at the end of the day, it really is up to the institutions and the government of the developing country to uh, find ways in order to allocate their, their aid much more uh, efficiently and effectively. But um, like the Paris Declaration and um, the Accra Agenda for Our Action, I do think that these organizations can help as an independent body to find better ways that could help promote economic growth and development um, in these countries, um, probably a lot better than state donors um, probably can. Because theoretically, um, these international organizations are supposed to be um, relatively unbiased. So that sounds like a lot of opportunity for new interesting research too. 
And with this, we conclude our episode of this podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you're interested in reading more of the research that we discussed, uh, you can find Mary Adadakwa's thesis in the Ursinus College Digital Commons at digitalcommons.ursinus.edu. And you can find more information on the book Incentivizing Peace on the website of this podcast. We're also putting some additional information on sources mentioned in this podcast on that same web website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode.